Uh, we're looking at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah chapter 66, uh, verses 1 and 2. And I, I should mention, too, I think we all know this, but we, immediately following the service is our, is our annual members meeting. So if you're a member, uh, please don't take off right at the end. Uh, we have that annual members meeting uh, coming up at the end of the service. But Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. And God's word says this to us this morning. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And this is the reading of God's good and perfect word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. I begin by introducing you to an 11th century monk who was at one point Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a theologian, considered uh, to be one of the most brilliant theologians, one of the most brilliant thinkers of the medieval age. Uh, he's very highly spoken of. He's described as a rare and unique character in the history of the church, primarily because of his great intellect that was combined with a great childlike faith. It's rare to see those two things together. We can see someone who has great childlike faith, another one who has great intellect, but in this man, these two things were found uh, uniquely joined together. And the individual I'm talking about is a man named Anselm, A-N-S-E-L-M. He wrote a number of works uh, that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, and Anselm wasn't perfect. It's important that I point that out. Uh, he had some theological things that we would strongly disagree with. For example, he taught purgatory. Uh, and he believed in praying to saints and in a couple other things. But what I love about Anselm, what I'm thankful for about him, was his big view of God. Uh, church historian Philip Schaff writes of him, quote, Love to God was the soul of his daily life. And love to God was the burning center of his theology. And wouldn't you love for that to be said about you? Love to God was the soul of his daily life, and love to God was the burning center of his theology. So if you were to pick up some of his works and, and read through them and think through them, what you'd immediately be struck by is his big view of God. And he would always start with this kind of this question, like, what is God like? And then he would work out from there. And that's crucial. That's crucial that that's where we start. What is God like? Because that's the exact opposite of where most people start today. Most people start with our own experiences and our own thoughts and, and things like that, and we, we build forward from there. But, but Anselm started right. Anselm started with God and worked outwards from there. The difference between those things is huge and crucial because you can think about it this way. Do, do you live and move and act and think as if God is the center around, around which everything revolves? Or do you live and move and act and think as if you are the center around which everything revolves. That's the difference between those things. Is your starting point you and trying to fit God in there somewhere? Or is it God and figuring out where you fit in his plan and his will and his purpose? 
I think a number of us here have, have been to Mackinac Island before. Uh, if you've been to Mackinac Island and, and you've been on the one big park that's, that's there, you'll see a statue of a man named Yax Marquette. And of course, if you're in the UP, uh, you know that there's a, a, one of the bigger cities, cities <laughs> in the UP is Marquette, named after him. He was a Canadian, a French Jesuit missionary who's planted some of the first cities in the Upper Peninsula, such as the Sault Ste. Marie uh, and also St. Ignace and a few others. Uh, but on Mackinac Island, they wanted to honor him, and so they built a statue of him. The problem is, they had no idea what he looked like. <laughs> and so they just kind of said, well, I think he looks like this, and, and made that statue. And I, I learned about that on one of, the, one of our several trips when we went there and visited there as a family, uh, and we took one of their tours, and the tour guide mentioned that to us. And you know, that, that really resonated with me, that clicked with me, because that's exactly what we do to God today. He made us in his image, and we're forever trying to recreate him in ours. We start with us and we say, well, I think God is like. But what we need to do is what Anselm did and said, this is what God is like. Looking at the scriptures, this is how he has revealed himself. Now, where do I fit into that? The difference is huge, isn't it? The difference is Huge. So many start with this view of God, thinking about their own experiences. So they have a, a great experience of love, and we overemphasize his love. Or perhaps we've had a difficult upbringing where perhaps we were even abused, and so we think of God as being very wrathful, and we have a difficult time thinking of him as being anything but wrathful and cold and distant. Or we've grieved and suffered much, and so we think of God as being cold and distant. You see, we, we tend to take our experiences and, and force them on God. We tend to define or shape God in this way. We scale him down in that way. Uh, Matthew Barrett asked this great question. He says, what kind of God does this leave us with? What kind of God does it leave us with when we start with us? And his answer is brilliant. He says, it leaves us with a God who's just a bigger and better version of ourselves. And I think that's true. I think a lot of people today are walking around and, and thinking about God as just kind of this, this version of ourselves as bigger and better. Remember, again, God made us in his image, not the other way around. So when we start with thoughts and experiences, our thoughts and experiences, we shape and form God into our image. We limit him as if he's a creature that can be limited. But God is the creator. He's not to be confused with creation. And so it's just, just a valuable lesson from Anselm there to start with God and work our way outward from there. And what we learn as we do that is that God is not like us. Uh, that he is wholly other than us. In fact, he possesses attributes that you and I will never possess. Attributes such as he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. Omniscient, he's all-knowing. Omnipresent, which means what? He's everywhere, right? Or omnisapient, we don't talk about that one enough. Omnisapient, he's all-wise. Not only that, he's immutable, he never changes. He's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He's incomprehensible. And he's infinite. Those are attributes that belong to him and him alone. He's not sharing those with us. It's, it's what theologians call his incommunicable attributes. He hasn't communicated them to us. 
They're his and his alone. Now we often talk about his other communicable attributes such as his love and mercy and justice and patience and as those made in his image, we are to be reflecting those and, and growing in those. But what we're doing these next few weeks is we're trying to behold God in all of his glory and behold him and his incommunicable attributes, his grandeur, his majesty that's far beyond us. That's, that's what we're trying to focus uh, these, these next few weeks. We're, we're doing this because we need a big view of God We've lost the awe and wonder of God, and we need to return to the godness of God. Amen? Amen. And see his majesty and, and see his glory. We, we have our eyes and our problems constantly focused on, on the problems instead of on God. Drew Dick, in his book, Yawning at Tigers, uh, puts it this way. People are starving for the awe of God but most don't know it. They think they're starving for success or money or excitement or acceptance. And he writes, I believe that once you strip away all our shallow desires and vain pursuits, it's God we're after. And not just any God, a God worth worshiping. And that's, that's the God of the scriptures. He is a God worth worshiping. But if, but if we're honest, often the way God gets presented, again, he's, he's nothing more than a bigger and better version of us. And who wants to worship that? That's not compelling. But scripture presents a God worth worshiping, a God worth beholding, a God worth giving your all. And like Dave was talking about, surrendering your life to. That's, that's the God we want to focus on. And we're going to begin with his infinitude. God is infinite. Isaiah 66 verse 1 uh, brings this out. It says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Notice the clear distinction between creation and creator. It's stating in crystal clear terms that God is wholly other than you and I. He's on a whole different level. He's transcendent. He's not just like us, only with superpowers. You ever think of God that way? Sometimes I see that's how we think about God. Well, he's he's kind of like me, but he has superpowers. And that's, God is far bigger than that. He's far better than that. God is distinct from us. He is above us. He is totally different than us. He's not finite. He's infinite. He transcends our characteristics. He's a different type of being. Here's how Anselm wrote it in his book, Proslogion. That sounds very sci-fi, doesn't it, Proslogion? Uh, it was not sci-fi. It's where he argues for the existence of God. Uh, but Anselm wrote this. God is, quote, something than which nothing greater can be thought. Something than which nothing greater can be thought. That's one of those statements that kind of makes you, like, make your head spin. <laughs> Need to go get Excedrin because of the headache it's giving you. Uh, but his, his point is, is that whatever you can conceive of in your, in your mind, it's not big enough. It doesn't even come close to who God is. God is something uh, than which nothing greater can be thought. You can't conceive of any being greater than him because he is infinite. That's what infinite means, without limit. So if you're looking for a short, simple definition of infinity or infinite, biblically it means no limits, limitless. God is without limits. So he says in Isaiah 66, verse 1, what is the house that you would build for me? 
And what is the place of my rest? What God is saying is he cannot be contained by a building. You can't put boundaries on him like the temple that Solomon built. If you remember Solomon, when they built the temple, he prays this prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8.27. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. See, try as we might, we can't confine God. We can't limit God. We can't box him in. We can't catalog him. I'll flip real quickly to Isaiah chapter 40, just just a few pages back. I'll keep your finger in Isaiah 66, but Isaiah chapter 40, uh, looking at verses 12 and 14. Here we see uh, just the greatness of God. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12. Who has measured the waters? So if you can kind of imagine all the seas and oceans on the earth. Who, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That's quite the picture, huh? God is able to hold all the oceans, the waters, in the hollow of his hand. Who has done that? Who has marked off the heavens with a span, and a span is what comes between your thumb and your, your what is that, your pointing finger? <laughs> oh, that's the span. Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. You, you see the emphasis on measuring in those verses. We love to measure things, right? Partly because if we can measure it, we can control it. But we love to measure things. We measure calories. Uh, we, we measure characteristics of others. We measure how many people are following us on social media. Uh, you name it, we measure it. We try and measure it, don't we? We try and measure everything. What this scripture is saying is that God cannot be measured. There is no end to his being, his immensity, his knowledge, his understanding. The heavens and the earth cannot contain him. You would sooner count every grain of sand on every shore or every star in every galaxy in our universe before you'd be able to count or measure his greatness. And quite honestly, you know what? If if even by some miracle... (laughs) you were able to count every grain of sand on every shore on this earth, you still wouldn't be any closer to measuring God than when you first started. Why? He's infinite. He's limitless. You're not any closer. Zophar says to Job in Job chapter 11, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? It's measure, again, talking about his, his, his greatness, the deep things of God. This measure is longer than the earth, broader than the sea. That's Job 11, verses 7 through 10. And that's beautiful poetry, emphasizing God's infinitude, that God has no limits. We have limits. I have limits. I turned 40 this week. 
I'm limited. <laughs> Very limited. <clears throat> I'm limited in strength. Uh, on, on our birthday, we decided to do something crazy and go sledding on that hill and just going up two or three times, I'm done. <laughs> limited in strength. Limited in knowledge, I'm still taking classes, still learning each day. Limited in wisdom, often need to ask others for help, for discernments. Limited in space, I can only be right here, right now. I can't be in two or three or four different places at once. So limited in space. Limited in skill, I can only do one thing well at a time, and often not even that. We're very limited. We're limited individuals. But God is not. He is the God of no limits. He is unbounded, immeasurable, unfathomable, in, inestimable in every way. Space can't hold him. Time can't contain him. He cannot increase. Right? He's infinite. There's none of this, like when you click on things on your computer and it slowly loads. He's not still loading. He's not increasing. He's not learning. None of that. He's, he's not in progress. He's not growing. He's not maturing. He's infinite. He's without limits. This is our God. This is our God. And whatever God is, he is infinitely. So we read in Psalm chapter 145, verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Why? His greatness is unsearchable. That's another word for, you never find the word infinity in the Bible. You see it taught in a lot of ways, and that's one of them. His greatness is what? Unsearchable. Without limit, in other words. Psalm, chapter 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding beyond measure. So there you see his power is what? It's abundant, which is again to say without limit, and his understanding beyond measure. Or Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power. That's another way of speaking about his infinity, right? It can't be measured. It's immeasurable, his power. And Paul prays that the believers in Ephesus might know that great power toward those who believe. What I, I'm sharing those verses again to say that whatever God is, he is infinitely. So in his understanding, he's infinite. In his greatness, he's infinite. In his power, he's infinite. And the same is true with every attribute you can think about of God. In his grace, he's infinite. In his truth, he's infinite. In his wisdom, he's infinite. You name it, it has no limits. Isaiah chapter 6 says, God is holy, holy, holy. It's repeated three times for emphasis. I think it's repeated three times to get the idea across that it has no measure, it has no bounds. It's limitless. God's holiness is infinite. It's without limits. Now just think about that for a second. What does that mean for our sin? If God is 
infinitely holy, which is to say infinitely above us and separated from us and beyond us, what's the application of that to my sin and, and to your sin? I think that's, that's good to think about because we like to minimize sin. So, so again, think about this. If, if God's holiness is infinite, what that means about my sin is there's no such thing as a small sin. Right? There's no such thing as a small sin. Again, we like to minimize our sin. We like to minimize it by comparing ourselves to others, right? I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy. That's part of the reason why I brought Wes up here, so you can see how bad he is and see how great I am. <laughs> That's a joke. <clears throat> Please, that was a joke. <laughs> but we like to do that, right? Compare ourselves to others. I'm not as bad as him or her. But when we compare ourselves to God who is infinitely holy, we begin to understand something about our sin. To once again quote Anselm, we have not as of yet estimated the great burden of sin. And I would say we have not estimated the great burden of sin until we've estimated the greatness of God's holiness. God is infinitely holy, and that means that one sin is infinitely what? Offensive to him. That's something to think about, huh? One sin is infinitely offensive to our infinitely holy God. This, by the way, is part of the answer to why hell is eternal. Because God is infinite, He is infinitely offended. Sin, no matter how small or big that you might think it is, That sin infinitely offends God's justice. It infinitely offends his righteousness and deserves an infinite or eternal punishment. That's scary to think about, huh? What that should do is make each one of us ask, what can we do? What are we supposed to do about that? What can can I do about that? I'm finite. He's infinite. What, What can I possibly do about that? How, how, how can we be saved from sin that's so great and such a burden, that sin that has this infinite offense? I, I can't atone for that. I can't make up for that. What do we need? We need someone who is infinite to atone for our sin against an infinite God. And that is the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have sinned an infinite offense against God, but God in his love has sent his infinite son to bear on the cross his infinite wrath, that we might be forgiven of that wrath and our sins and our trespasses and know only now his infinite love and grace and kindness. God is the gospel. Amen? And in his grace, he sends the limitless one to redeem us. Jesus suffered eternal hell for us and in doing so established a bridge which enables finite creatures like you and I to have a personal relationship with the infinite God of the universe. That's the gospel we we love and cherish and proclaim. What a savior. And all of us here and all of us watching online, you you can know the salvation. You can have this forgiveness. 
simply by believing. For it is by faith you have been saved, not by works, lest anyone should boast. Now why did God do it this way? Just turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 for, for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, as we, as we think about why, why God did it this way, uh, seeing the infiniteness of sin and the offense against God, why, why has God worked it the way that he's worked it? And again, we're just trying to work out this thought. If God is, whatever God is, he is infinitely, so he's infinitely holy, and what that means for us. Uh, turn to Ephesians 2, and I, I want you to see how the scriptures bring this out, because we talk a lot about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We need to talk a little bit more about Ephesians 2, 10. But we really need to talk about Ephesians 2, 7. I will look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Talking about the, inf- the infinitude of our sin and the desperate situation we are in apart from Christ. Verse 1 of Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. See, the Bible talked about walking dead way before that became a popular TV show, huh? There's the walking dead right there. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So there's his holiness like the rest of mankind. But verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy immeasurable mercy, infinite mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, his his infinite love, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not something you earn, by grace. Now watch verse 6 and 7. Jesus, our God, has raised us up with Christ and seated us us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, so that... Why has he done it this way? So that in the coming ages, which is eternity future, in the coming infinite limitless future, he might show the immeasurable or infinite riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is an amazing verse. We don't think enough about that in relation to his infinity. So we praise God for his grace today because we do kind of have some inkling of of the greatness of our sin and and we correspondingly praise him for his grace. But you know what? When when we're in heaven and and we see the glory of of God and his infinite kindness and riches of his grace and and, and all those things this, 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 this verse brings out, we don't know the half of it yet. We don't know the half of it yet. This, this grace and kindness that we experience today, it's a mere pittance. It's, it's a tiny drop in God's boundless ocean, his infinite ocean of kindness and grace. And we'll experience that in the new heavens and the new earth. And I think it's fair to say that th- this is true not just about his kindness and grace, like, like it says in Ephesians 2.7, but since, again, God is infinite, And whatever God is, he is infinitely. So I think in heaven, there's going to be this infinite experience of his infinite attributes. With each attribute of God, there's an infinite height, depth, width, and breadth. What that means is 
Uh, that which can be seen and known and experienced about God is without limit. So I'm just going to flesh this out a little bit. In heaven, there will be an unceasing display, a never-ending supply of God's infinitude in all of his attributes. This is why heaven will never be boring. Heaven will be, at least one person here believes that. (laughs) Heaven will be, heaven will be a place of of infinite, never-ending supply of God's infinitude. So again, think through this with me. With each passing moment, there will be in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, with each passing moment, there will be an ever-increasing comprehension of God and his beauty and his grace and his kindness and his understanding and his wisdom and all, the, all those things go on and on with those. And with that ever-increasing comprehension, there will be a corresponding increase of awe and wonder and majesty at who God is. That's heaven. That's heaven. Our joy will increase forever. Our wonder will increase forever. Our awe and amazement will increase forever. Our love for God will increase forever and ever. And you can go on and on with all those attributes. Heaven is limitless and limitlessly exciting because the God who dwells there is limitless. That's our view of heaven. That's the biblical view of heaven. So if we have loved ones who have passed away in faith in, faith in Christ, all that we've just said right there, they are moment by moment with ever-increasing ever comprehension of God, there's an ever-increasing joy and delight and love that they're experiencing. And that's what awaits for all of us who believe. This is why we don't fear death. And this is why we need a big view of God. We're so focused on this world as if this is our home, as if this is where we find our happiness and our hope and our joy and our wonder. God, forgive us and put our focus on his glory, his infinite majesty that awaits us in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. Put your mind there, yes? And that's why, moving into just a little bit of application I know it's a little bit cheesy if you're following in the notes. I, I put to infinity and beyond. I couldn't help it. I think infinity and I think Toy Story. <laughs> but, but it fits, right? To infinity and beyond. God is infinite. So just a few thoughts of, of application just to kind of narrow it down. The first is let's not domesticate God. We limit him, right? Like he's, he's limitless, And yet, in so many ways, we try and limit him. We try and tame him. We try and box him in. And I just want to plead with you for a moment. Don't don't domesticate God. Don't don't try and tame him like like a lion at the zoo. Don't don't domesticate him. He's, He's infinite. And I thought of a lot of ways that we tend to do this. I'm just going to share a few of them. In your growth groups, I would just encourage you to... Spend some time thinking about this. What, what are ways that we tend to limit God? But a few that came to my mind is, one, we, we limit God's wrath. We limit his wrath when we never talk about it. 
We limit his wrath when we say things like, and a lot of people say this, that there is no such thing as hell. We limit his wrath when we make jokes about hell. Right? We're limiting his wrath in that way. We limit his wrath when we speak carelessly about hell. We limit his wrath when we never talk about it. Or when we do, we apologize for it. We limit his wrath in so many ways. And the worst part about limiting God's wrath is we actually limit the cross. When you limit God's wrath, you make small of the cross. You make small of what Christ did on the cross for us. You make small of the fact that he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we minimize his wrath and we limit his wrath and don't think much about it or talk much about it, the cross just whittles down in importance. We do this in so many ways. We, we limit his mercy. We limit God's mercy when we think to ourselves, man, God could never forgive me. That's limiting his mercy. When we think we've sinned so bad and so awful and done so many uh, sinful things, God is too angry, God will never forgive me. Is that you this morning? Do you feel hopeless and helpless? Maybe you're, again, you're tempted this morning to think that God could never forgive me. If you knew the things that I've done, you would know he would never forgive me. He's, he's too angry with me. God doesn't care about me. God's written me off. No way. His mercy is infinite. No matter how deep and dark the stain of sin, his mercy goes deeper. Thieves can be forgiven. Homosexuality can be forgiven. Drunkenness can be forgiven. Liars can be forgiven. Adulterers can be forgiven. You name the sin, the blood of Christ can cover it. I know that because God's mercy is infinite. You cannot out sin the mercy of God. Paul wrote half the New Testament and he was a murderer and a blasphemer and God forgave him when he turned from his sin and, and cast it upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So we limit his mercy when we think we've sinned too much for God to forgive us. We limit his mercy even more when we realize we've sinned so badly and now we try and turn around and earn God's forgiveness. Right? We limit it even more when, when, when we do that. We realize we've done all these bad things, so we think we have to do something to, to earn God's favor, to, to make him forgive us. Again, no way, no way. God's mercy is infinite. What are you going to add to that? <laughs> think about that, right? His mercy is infinite. How are you going to add to that in any way? Whatever it is you think you're doing. If you want to know God's mercy and forgiveness... You humble yourself and you believe in the infinite one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sin on the cross and rose from the dead. There's another way we limit God's mercy, and it's when we refuse to forgive others. Again, isn't this astounding, the ways we domesticate God? God is so big and infinite and limitless, and we want to tame him down. And so when people offend us, or, if, or, or we're, we're offended by people, and they sin against us, 
We want to hold that against them. We become bitter and angry. That should never be. God in Christ has forgiven us all of our sin, past and present and future. He's been so merciful to us as far as the east and from the west. He's removed our sin. And so we should forgive. No matter the offense, we should forgive. We should be forgiving people. And you say they don't deserve it. That's the point. (laughs) Yes? No one deserves it. I don't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. That's grace. That's mercy. That's forgiveness. It's not earned. It's freely given. And so as those forgiven by God, how dare we limit his mercy in refusing to forgive others? And maybe there's someone the Lord is convicting you about right now that you've been holding this grudge. You need to take that to God. You need to take that to that person right now. Stop limiting his mercy. Watch what God will do through it as you humble yourself before him. And as long as I'm on the topic of uh, mercy and forgiveness, there's one other way we tend to limit God's mercy. And that is when all, we hear all this talk today about people saying, maybe you've said it, uh, but, but just saying, I just can't forgive myself. Man, that limits God's mercy, doesn't it? God can look at his son on the cross and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God can be propitiated or satisfied by that. But apparently it's not enough for us. We need something more. Somehow this has slipped into God's church where we have believers uh, walking around saying saying things like, uh, only only if, if I could forgive myself, I need to forgive myself. You can't forgive yourself. That's the whole point of the gospel. You need God's forgiveness. Go to him. Confess your sins, and he is faithful and righteous and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. Not part of it. Not the part that you think you have to forgive. That's anti-gospel, right? That's limiting the gospel. That's setting yourself up as the gospel. God, forgive us. We limit his power. We limit his power when we encounter trials and difficult situations and we grumble and complain. Sometimes we limit his power as churches, and and Dave was talking about this earlier, when uh, we we just wish if we had more money, more people, bigger buildings, we could do all this stuff. But reality is we serve the God of limitless power. And it's limitlessly exciting There's no telling what he can do through us. But I'll tell you what, the the number one way we'd like to limit God's power is in the area of his sovereignty. We're going to look at this closer in a few weeks, but I'm going to quote Spurgeon here. Spurgeon says this, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials... They believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon the throne. And notice what he says, still quoting Spurgeon, on the other hand... 
There is no doctrine more hated, no truth of which they have made such a football. That's quite the, the analogy, huh? As the great, stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Again, Spurgeon, men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his uh, almondry, I don't know what that is, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And when we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting us, then we are hissed at, and then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love but it is God on the throne that we preach. And it is God on his throne in whom we trust. Those are just a few of the ways that we limit God. And I'm just trying to plead with us, don't limit him. Don't domesticate him. Don't rival God. In her book, None Like Him, Jen Wilkin makes this great point. She, she says, quote, human beings created to bear the image of God instead aspire to become like God Designed to reflect God's glory, we choose instead to rival it. How so? Well, we talked about his incommunicable attributes, right? Attributes that belong to him alone. And in that book, None Like Him by Jen Wilkin, it's a great book, I'd encourage you to pick it up. Uh, in, in that book, uh, she makes these great points about how God has these incommunicable attributes that he has not shared with us, but we're forever trying to take them from him. And so God is omniscient. He knows all things. And what are we always trying to be? We're trying to know everything ourselves. If we have to know everything before we act or move or do something instead of trusting him. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But rather than celebrate his power, we want what? We want the power, right? We try to be omnipresent. God alone is omnipresent. He's everywhere, but we, we try and be omnipresent by running around constantly, chasing our tails. God is self-existent, self-sufficient. But man, as Americans especially, we try and live as if we're self-sufficient. We pride ourselves on it. We would love to be sovereign in control of our lives, our relationships, our futures, our families. We love being in control, don't we? Yes. That belongs to who? God and God alone. But you see, we constantly rival him, yes? These things belong to him alone. We're so much like Adam and Eve. We're just like Adam and Eve. We long for that which is intended only for God. We want to, it's not enough to be made in his image. We want his glory. We constantly uh, reject our God-given limits. We spend a huge amount of time trying to do only that which God can do. And you know what? We're miserable because we keep doing that. We're miserable. We foolishly rival God. We're proud. We're arrogant, reluctant to admit that we have limitations. Look, it's okay to say, I have limitations. <laughs> it's okay to say, you can't do everything you set your heart on because you're not God. Limits are good. They're God-imposed. 
Instead of fighting against them, we should humbly receive them. These are limitations that God has wisely placed upon us. And so that just leads to, if we're not supposed to rival God or domesticate God, what should we do? Well, Isaiah 66 verse 2 tells us. Isaiah 66 verse 2 ends by saying, this is the one to whom I will look. What should we be if we're not supposed to rival or domesticate God, we should be humble, contrite in spirit, and trembling at God's word. I want to be that person, don't you? Does, does that describe you this morning? Are you humble? Are you contrite? Do you tremble at his word? God is creator, you are creation. God is without limit, you are limited. When you reach the limit of your strength, don't rival, but instead worship God and his limitless strength. When you reach the limit of your knowledge and wisdom facing hard situations, don't rival God. Worship him who never makes mistakes, with perfect oversight over all things. And through it all, be contrite. That is to say, have a tender heart. Not hard and calcified, but a heart that's full of awe and wonder. That, that's what it means to tremble. That word quite literally means have awe or have reverence. You're in awe, you're in reverence at God, and not just God, but his word. Does that describe you this morning? Are you trembling at God and his word? For those of us who have been Christians for a while, uh, it, it becomes easy to think we've kind of figured this out. It becomes easy to think uh, that we've pretty much exhausted the possibilities of the Christian life. We settle. We, we go into cruise control mode. We have very little expectation. Everything kind of becomes familiar and predictable. Uh, one, one preacher put it this way. He said, and it's a powerful illustration, he said, we dip our teaspoon into the vast ocean of the living God. You picture that, that little teaspoon? Dip, dipping that in to the vast, infinite ocean of the living God. And holding that little teaspoon in our hand, we say, this is God. <laughs> we do that, don't we? This is God. And then we, we pour it into our lives and we say, this is the Christian experience. Is that you this morning? I know I've been there, I've done that. Is that you this morning? God is this infinite, limitless, boundless ocean. God is calling us right now to dive into that ocean. He is calling you into an ever new regions of his fullness, his, his immensity, his grandeur. There is more for you and I in God than we dare imagine. God is limitless and limitlessly exciting. We should never think that we've, we have God all figured out or that we've seen everything he can do. Don't domesticate God. Don't rival God. Humble yourself. Be contrite and tremble. Tremble at his infinitude. Tremble at his majesty. Tremble at God. Amen? So I've asked the praise team to close us with the song, Who Am I? Uh, it's by Casting Crowns. It's been around for a while. It's on the radio quite a bit. But it's just kind of resonating in my mind as, as I read and think Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, which I'm just going to read it one more time. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is, the, is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? 
What is the place of my rest? And the response to that is kind of, who am I, right? Who am I? But then verse 2, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. Who am I? 